0: Welcome to CIO Perspectives. I'm Sidall, the CIO of Private Client Endowments and Foundations here at Brown Advisory. And today I'll be joined by Erica Pagel, the CIO of Sustainable Investing. And we're delighted to have Bertie Thompson, a co-portfolio manager of Brown Advisory's Global Strategies uh, in our London office to join us. There's a lot going on in markets right now, so let's get right in. We've seen a meaningful rally in risk assets over the last few months in the face of what was some extremely bearish investor sentiment and positioning. Global stocks are up 12% from their lows and the Nasdaq is up more than 20%. Markets are climbing the proverbial wall of worry. It appears that data on both the economic and company level has been better than what was baked in. For the first time in nearly a decade, even companies that missed earnings actually saw their stocks move higher. Recent positives include a strong US jobs report for July and a CPI print that shows that inflationary pressures may be easing somewhat. So despite a tight labor market, continued inflationary pressures in the US, investors have responded positively to recent news. Stock market valuations have moved higher and bond yields and inflation expectations have moved lower. But the backdrop may be a bit more challenging in Europe where energy prices have skyrocketed and the recession may well be in the cards. So let me turn to Bertie, who has an excellent vantage point from London. Uh, Bertie, we are reading a lot about the energy crisis resulting from the war in Ukraine. Uh, Power prices are up 10X in Europe as Russia has slowed delivery of gas. Some economists are predicting not just higher prices, but maybe even rationing of power in the colder winter months, which could hit not just consumers, but also industrial companies and their ability to produce. What is your perspective and how is the global equity team positioned as a result?
1: Thanks, Sid. Um, thank you for having me uh, on the podcast. And it's a very important question uh, that you raise at this moment in time. Certainly, when you look at the uh, economic backdrop in Germany, it's, it's been as gloomy as I can remember for quite some time. We spent some time looking at the IFO um, Business Climate Survey. And in terms of expectations for the next six months, it's one of the lowest readings that we've seen since the financial crisis in fact, if you exclude April 2020, as we went into COVID, it is actually the lowest expectations reading um, of CEOs um, of uh, manufacturing and services companies in that region. So clearly, uh, management teams are expecting a very, very difficult six to 12 months ahead of us. Now, a lot of it is due, as you mentioned, due to very, very high energy prices. So if you look at the, uh, the Dutch Gas contract, which is the marker price basically for European gas, the TTF, that is up uh, over six x uh, year over year, and German power prices today are at an all-time high. Now, a lot of this is due to the reliance that Germany and and some other parts of Europe have on Russian energy. Uh, you know, some of this in Germany specifically is due to the decision making made, made, made back in 2011 following the Fukushima disaster for Germany uh, to, to decommission the fleet uh, of nuclear reactors that they have. Part of this was because uh, Chancellor Merkel was in a coalition with the uh, green, um, green-leaning green FDP uh, party. So the, the, the country has migrated some of its energy towards renewables, but it's still reliant, as mentioned, or it still was reliant largely on Russian gas. So what is the, the economic impact of all of this? If you look at what the IMF expects, they expect if Russia completely cuts off the remaining gas supplies, for that to be a 3% headwind to GDP growth in 2023 uh, for the German economy. And that's for an economy that is only expected to grow at uh, 0.8%. So clearly, if if Putin decides to turn the remaining taps off, then Germany will go into um, a recession. So clearly very difficult for both consumers and businesses. Some businesses have actually responded by shifting production um, I- internationally. Uh, BSAF would be a good example of that. They've shifted some of their ammonia manufacturing away from uh, Germany to, to the U.S. to make uh, to, to really to take advantage of that energy arbitrage uh, that exists in this moment, moment in time. And in terms of how it impacts our companies, you really need to look at it on a case-by-case basis. Interestingly, some of the companies we invest in are actually benefiting uh, from this situation. We invest in Deutsche Börse, which is an integrated securities exchange, and it it owns EX, which is the largest power exchange within Europe. They've obviously seen record volumes uh, this year, and specifically their gas contracts have seen uh, incredibly high Uh, volume activity um, in the very recent past, in July, and that's hardly surprising. And we expect this company to benefit from the ongoing trend of trading to shift from OTC to on-exchange. And if anything, this is probably one of the best times to push that forward, that the role of a clearinghouse becomes even more important in this environment. Um, so very much on a case by case basis, it's worth saying that you know, Europe is home to some very, very high quality businesses. And we would view any prolonged downturn or any drawdown in the equity markets as really an opportunity to buy a number of these high quality businesses and increase our clients exposure to them uh, on what might be some uh, temporary weakness. So
0: Bertie, er- earlier this year, uh, at the onset of the conflict, we made an asset allocation decision. To reduce our exposure to Europe because of some of these risks, and I'm curious from your seat being able to invest anywhere in the world, you know how close are we to bargains on individual high quality companies, um, and just you know how, how has the market presented opportunities in, in the last few months?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one because when you look at any individual country, you need to dig a lot deeper than just the index. You know, one question we had, we have had historically um from global investors has been why are you not more exposed to europe if you look at the p ratio on the euro stocks it looks very attractive versus the us and the same um questions come about japan as well you know japan looks really really cheap why are you guys not investing more more in japan i think it's really important not just to look at like trailing p multiples or forward p multiples But look at the returns of these businesses, look at the growth, look at the reinvestment opportunities they have, and also look at the individual constituents of each uh, market. Specifically for Europe, we we have seen some weakness this year, um, but Europe has also um, seen something of a quality premium uh, for some of these companies. You know, technology, as an example, in Europe is a fraction. Uh, it's less than 3% of the euro stocks where, you know, it's 20% plus of the S&P 500. So high quality software companies in Europe typically traded a big premium to those in America as an example. And it's the same with, you know, uh, technology, hardware and other high quality areas in consumer and industrials. So some of that premium is coming in. We're not seeing it come into the point whereby we're really banging the table and seeing really attractive mid-teens IRRs. Uh, but it's certainly something that we're very much focused on. We have a rate-to-buy list of companies, and a number of them are um, based in Europe. The last point to make as well, depending on where you're located, is the euro has dramatically weakened versus the dollar this year. So if you look at it in dollar terms, you, you do see more attractive opportunities coming your way, uh, but there's nothing you know, front and center of us at this moment in time that gets us super excited, not least with the rally that the markets had in the last couple of months.
2: Bertie, thank you for joining us today. While we're talking about the global outlook, let me ask you about your views on China. The zero COVID policy has taken a toll on China's economy, which had long been an engine of global growth. The People's Bank of China just cut policy rates driven by slowing economic momentum, and there's headlines about rising geopolitical tensions surrounding Taiwan. How do you make sense of it all and think about these issues when managing a global equity portfolio?
1: Thanks, Erica. It's a really difficult question to answer, uh, not least because of uh, travel restrictions preventing us going to China uh, and we haven't been uh, to China or uh, actually had feet on the ground in that country for quite some time because it's so difficult to get in and it takes a long time to get out but we're obviously speaking to companies that we own and also to companies that we might potentially own within the country no question as you touch on that the economic environment is also getting cloudy uh, you mentioned uh, the, the, the easing in the one-year lending rate that we've seen this week. Um, yeah, I would expect more of that to come. Industrial production seems like it's slowing down. Retail sales came in slightly weaker than expected. And as you mentioned, youth unemployment is, is, is very, very high indeed within that country. So it's a difficult um, situation that the administration over there have to deal with. We would expect more and more stimulus. Uh, we would, funnily enough, probably expect more and more populism. Uh, as the economy slows down, we've seen this most dramatically with some of the technology companies, uh, whereby they have been reprimanded both through regulation, uh, but also being forced to contribute to different social funds um, and essentially cough up to uh, what we think are largely artificial misdemeanors of the past. So I think there's a, you know, almost like a sort of social revolution going on within the country, starting from the top, obviously without the middle class growing, but it's very much about um, other parts of the society being integrated and benefiting from the wealth that the, co- the country um, has delivered over the last uh, 10 years. You know, growth in the country is, is slowing, as I mentioned, uh, slowing from an historic you know, 10% growth that I can remember uh, a few years back to around 3% this year. That's what the IMF expects. Uh, we have no crystal ball about whether it's going to be a hard landing or, or a soft landing. Um, and we are you know, very much focused on the quality companies that have exposure to, to China. Now, a number of those aren't actually listed in China. Uh, a couple of them are listed in Hong Kong. Um, and we also access China through our investments um, in other parts of the world uh, as well. And we're really looking for companies that will benefit from the growth and consumption uh, and really providing products such as life assurance, uh, cosmetics or elevators that are quite hard to get otherwise um, through domestic players um, and we still see the you know, long runway for growth for those businesses. So still an exciting country but no doubt going through a cyclical slowdown and there are some political and social issues that they have to deal with um, um, as, as, as that economic growth slows down um, and as the administration um, tries to uh, keep the growth uh, growth going.
2: Bertie, maybe we can drill into a few company examples. What about Taiwan Semiconductor, a company that you hold in a few strategies? It's obviously deeply intertwined into these dynamics that you just discussed. And I know you've studied the situation closely.
1: Yeah, TSMC is an incredibly important company uh, for the future of the world. I uh, you know they are by far the largest um, foundry uh, producer. And they have a very, very strong uh, position in the cutting edge, um, low nanometer advanced node uh, chips that are produced that go into everything from an iPhone uh, to other advanced um, applications. And they really are head and shoulders above anyone else in the industry. Now, when you look at the political situation um, with China viewing Taiwan essentially as part of the country, Unfortunately, or I guess fortunately for the Taiwanese, there is something of a Mexican standoff. China is heavily reliant on Taiwan and on TSMC, not only for importation of chips, but also those chips go into a number of products, such as the iPhone, uh, that are made in China. So the whole ecosystem is inextricably linked with each other. I think with Speaker Pelosi going over uh, and visiting the country recently, uh, that was probably an unnecessary goading of the administration over there. And we were certainly concerned about the military activity that was conducted. But I think for us, the reality is that there is uh, no way really to extricate each one of these countries from the situation that they're in. They are both heavily reliant on each other. Um, and we think the saber rattling will probably continue. Um, but we, we don't think that a conflict is part of our, our base case. But when we do our scenarios and we think about cost of capital for a company such as TSMC, you know, we do reflect this heightened country risk in the discount factor that we use. when We're discounting the cash flows that the company produces, irrespective of the fact that they are selling these products globally and largely in dollars.
0: So basically, Bertie, you're, you're saying for a company like that, um, or, or a company in emerging markets, you're just going to use a higher discount rate. Future cash flows will be valued at, at, at a lower um, value today when they're coming from a, a higher risk country or jurisdiction.
1: That's right. And uh, you know, as a reminder, we, we use a 10% cost of capital for developed markets and a higher one for developing markets to account for country risk and, and frequently also for currency depreciation as well so the hurdle for a Indian company a Brazilian company or a Taiwanese company getting into uh, our strategy is obviously a lot higher on that on that basis. We also look at probabilities around the cash flows as well um, and need to spend a lot of time looking at bear cases not least in China and other parts of the world, whereby they have different corporate governance systems, they have different rule of law, and they have a very different approach to uh, private property rights. So yeah, it's a very important part of our um, analysis and also comes back to what I was describing earlier. When you look at the multiple of certain uh, countries around the world, you need to remind yourself that you know, a P ratio in India or in China should very rightly, everything else being equal, be lower than one in America or Europe um, because to account of what what you're touching on, country risk and also currency depreciation. Maybe pivot um,
0: back to just what we've seen the last few weeks in the market. I mean, Bertie, you talked about it as um, things maybe were getting a bit more interesting and, and maybe less so as the market's moved higher. Erica, you and I have talked a lot about this. What's What's been going on the last few weeks uh, in the market? Why, why have we seen this rally uh, since the end of June? And, and is this a, a bear market rally or is it something more substantial?
2: Well, we are approaching a, a 20% rally on the S&P. Um, if you look at uh, Lowe's compared to in in mid-June, and and there's a couple of things happening. Number one, investor sentiment had become overly bearish, um, especially leading into second quarter earnings season. Secondly, inflation and interest rates have driven the direction of the markets for for most of this year, and what we've started to see is more um, influence from corporate earnings uh, that are now playing a larger role in driving market returns. So, a couple of things that we look at. Um, you know, much of a company's reaction to earnings results is often predicated on expectations that are either currently priced in um, or heading into the print. So, oftentimes, not so great news or bad news can be um, can often be good news. And we've said for a while that resetting forward earnings expectations would actually be welcome news for the market, and we actually started to see that uh, for the first time in June. So heading into early July, you did start to see negative earnings revisions um, for the second quarter for the S&P 500 if you excluded energy, uh, which – is you know having a disproportionate impact on S and P earnings this year. Second quarter overall earnings were, were actually negative, um, and you know things are things are really moving very fast right now. Just in the past three weeks, we've seen 2022 earnings estimates come down um, from nearly nine percent to roughly eight percent, um, and so. Um, you know that that is absolutely helpful in, in thinking about all the the valuation and, and multiples um, you know that that uh, have been quite volatile so far this year you know we still think that back half uh, of 2022 and 2023 estimates are at risk of more revisions um, but um, you know I, I think um, right now when you look at 2023 consensus forecasts, they are painting a, a more soft landing picture. So you've got revenue growth up a few percent at 3% with earnings up close to 8%. So that really implies that, you know, analysts are expecting an economic slowdown, slower sales growth, but also declining cost pressure, declining inflation, um, which would result in, you know, some better earnings. And then lastly, the the inflation print was was better than feared. And we, we started to see, some moderating increases within a few important areas like energy.
0: It's really interesting that that is kind of a prediction of the opposite of what we've seen thus far in, in earnings, which has been kind of revenue surprising, maybe a little bit to the upside, but all those cost pressures eating into corporate margins, you know, kind of an aggregate uh, basis. Uh, maybe quickly we could touch on um, the Inflation Reduction Act and uh, maybe for you, Erica, there's a lot of news coming out about this. It, it could have implications in, in many areas, but particularly in kind of energy transition and, and your uh, uh, area of expertise and sustainability. Could you just tell us your your quick takes on on this, uh, Bill?
2: Yeah, in the U.S., the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the IIJA, as well as the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, should help to spur Investment in climate and clean energy. So, the Inflation Reduction Act um, is landmark legislation. It's the biggest climate investment in the U.S. um, And, you know, the act includes roughly $369 billion on climate and energy policies. So, a few areas of focus are uh, there's a goal to cut carbon emissions by 40% by 2030. The act Looks to provide wider accessibility to clean energy with the goal of lowering renewables costs, as well as increasing US competitiveness in clean energy. So there's provisions for investments um, in renewables, um, provisions for retrofits, incentives to buy electric vehicles, there's tax incentives for companies to build solar panels. Batteries uh, to process critical minerals, but there's also tax credits for low-income Americans um, to purchase electric vehicles, uh, rebates for those that increase their home energy efficiency. So overall, this is good news for the clean energy industry. It's a game changer, um, you know. And subsequently, clean energy, electric vehicles, solar stocks—they've seen a nice bounce heading into and following this vote. So the Wilderhill Clean Energy um, Index is up more than 35% just in one month. And then there's some certain solar stocks that have rebounded nearly 50%. And many of these companies will benefit from these provisions and and tax incentives.
0: There's been a lot of discussion about some of the kind of fiscal spending that's gone on the last few years and and the impact on inflation. Do you have any views as to whether or not what we're seeing here will be inflationary or deflationary. Uh, Is this going to help us or hurt us? And maybe there's a difference between the near term and and the kind of medium or longer term impact here?
2: Yeah. So, you know, there's no doubt that um, some renewables uh, initially carry a higher cost of capital. Um, And many companies from a business standpoint need to weigh that cost of capital um, over time. What we have seen, um, you know, really over the past 10 years is many areas of renewable energy like solar, that cost has come down. Um, but, you know, there are many um, different areas um, that can help us get to lower carbon emissions. Many technologies, uh, there'll be new technologies uh, that will come out. You know, this act uh, hopefully helps to provide well-needed incentives, um, whether they're rebates or tax incentives that will help promote investment, um, particularly early on investment or CapEx um, that will ultimately lead to uh, lower costs in the future. So, you know, I think think overall, this will be disinflationary um, in the long term. Uh, Initially, um, as, you know, a lot of these technologies start to ramp up, um, you know, the initial cost may may be slightly higher. Sid, let me turn to you. I know you've also been following inflationary dynamics very closely. We touched on the environment a bit, but inflation is very high. The CPI print in July remains above 8%. When do you think inflation will start to moderate, and what does this mean for Fed policy going forward? Do you think we're going to be able to execute a soft landing?
0: I think a lot of it depends on your definition of soft landing. You know, I think a true soft landing in my mind is kind of one where you still have solid growth and inflation is contained. I think by some definitions, we've kind of already entered a recession in the U.S. Uh, We've had two straight negative quarters of GDP growth. Uh, It's just a a very odd one, one that probably won't be considered an official recession because uh, unemployment is less than four percent. The labor market is really strong. So it's a really unique situation. I will say, you know, by the Fed's own calculations, financial conditions have tightened in this hiking cycle at the fastest pace in forty years. So, talked about this internally as kind of you know slamming on the brakes. Uh, this isn't just the Fed hiking rates. This is kind of the mar- the markets responding to that, and credit spreads increasing, and and just the cost of capital increasing uh, pretty quickly. Um, I do think. It does matter what kind of recession we're talking about, you know, if if I think a a soft ish landing is one where we're avoiding a a kind of deeper recession. Um, And I think there's a pretty good chance that we do avoid that. We have a really strong consumer. I think the Fed appears to have regained some of its credibility. Um, We certainly have a much sounder banking system than we had in, in 2008 when we saw a very deep recession uh just generally i'm a lot less concerned today than i was in 2008 or even 2020 when we were facing um you know incredible unknowns with the pandemic um you know i'd say what birdie was talking about earlier in europe uh what we've talked about with with china and emerging markets the weakness in uh in economies outside of the us uh does continue to kind of concern me it can weigh on global growth um and i think we're finally reaching a point where high inflation is starting to really pinch the consumer so uh, we've seen some pretty big jumps in consumers borrowing so people using their credit card to kind of keep their spending uh, pace uh, amidst you know higher prices on everything from you know food and and electricity to consumer goods so um, you know wages are rising quickly we've talked about that a lot but they're actually not keeping pace with inflation And so I think it will get harder for the consumer to remain as strong as as they've been. Um, I think there is no doubt a a lot of positive to be taken from the last print. So really the last print was month over month. For one month, we had no changes in in, in headline prices. Um, But if that happened every month for the rest of the year, we'd still end 2022 with over 6% inflation. That's way above the Fed's 2% target. And as we've talked about, I mean, there are a lot of elements of inflation that are probably gonna remain pretty stubborn. So, um, you know, inflation is is also a highly unpredictable beast, uh, so to speak, is a lot of behavioral considerations on top of just the monetary and fiscal ones. So, um, and the stubborn elements, you know, we've got uh, 5 million more job openings than we have unemployed workers. So there's just a huge gap uh, in the labor market, that can continue to put upward pressure on on wages, and then in the housing market, uh, we've had a huge rise in mortgage rates, and and hence a decline in affordability, and we've had years of undersupply of of new homes following the financial crisis, and and those are two dynamics that could lead to just kind of continued further upward price uh, pressure on on rents, so. Right now, we're kind of at this moment where the market is telling us the Fed's got this under control. Long-term inflation expectations have come down a lot. I mean, almost 1% um, per year uh, expectations have fallen in the last you know, three, four months, uh, if you look out five years. Um, so uh, markets also now pricing in the Fed's gonna pivot and start lowering rates early next year. Um, that still seems like a pretty rosy outlook and, and I guess I would say that I think there's still some risk to the upside in inflation and, and we want to be positioned uh, accordingly.
2: One month of better than feared inflation uh, is certainly not a trend. Um, you know, Persistent inflation uh, has created unique challenges for asset allocation and, and how we manage client portfolios. Many clients often use a playbook of a 70-30 portfolio, which is 70% stocks and 30% in fixed income. Sid, is, is that a playbook for today?
0: It's a good question. It's one that comes up more and more um, where people are saying, do we need to think kind of radically differently about this environment? Um, I think we do need to think differently. Uh, I mean, these are the highest inflation rates we've seen in 40 years. The first half of this year was, was the worst period uh, in that same you know, 40 years that we've seen for a 70-30 or 60-40 portfolio. Bonds have really struggled to provide that kind of diversification and downside protection because yields are just so low. And and by the way, even though yields have come up a lot, they're still very negative on an inflation adjusted basis, right? We've got, you know, two, 3% bond yields and we've got 8% uh, inflation right now. So, you know, our view has definitely been, we need a bit of a different playbook. We need more tools in the toolkit going outside of just stocks and bonds. So this is why we've, either introduced or increased uh, things outside of uh, pure stocks, things like uh, real estate, uh, infrastructure assets, absolute return hedge funds that can be uncorrelated to stocks and bonds. And we've also tried to put a real premium on business quality and and balance between strategies like growth and, and value. The value stocks tend to be less sensitive to um, high rates of, of inflation and, and higher interest rates and certainly moves higher in both of those things. So have also tried to keep the duration in our bond portfolios uh, shorter given the risk of rising rates. And and interestingly right now, you know, the yield curve is, is not just flat, but it's a little bit inverted uh, at the front end, which means that, you know, very short-term uh, bonds have better yields than uh, some bonds further out the curve. And that's based on what we were talking about before, this kind of rosy expectation right now that the Fed's got everything under control, inflation's gonna come down, the economy is going to slow, and so people expect lower rates of inflation and and will accept lower yields in the future. So I I think we do need a a, a new playbook, but I think we've stopped short of the you know 1970s playbook where you would have a a massive allocation to areas like uh, commodities, Uh, just because I don't think it's our job to plan for one potential outcome. I think it's our job to think about um, many different outcomes because predicting which one we are going to get is really hard. Um, It will depend on um, how entrenched inflation is in people's minds. It will depend on what the Fed does. It will depend on some of the geopolitical uh, issues that we've been talking about. So um, there are a lot of different outcomes, but one of the ones we need to prepare more for than at any time over the last 40 years is just structurally higher inflation.
2: Yeah, the markets today seem to be moving on macro issues, um, which is something that we we haven't seen in, in quite some time. Bertie, let me turn to you. You often look for high quality companies with pricing power, those that may be better positioned in the current market environment. How are you seeing companies respond in this inflationary period?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so the way that we look at Pricing power is really through the lens of what we call willingness to pay. So we are looking for companies whereby the price that they're charging today is substantially below the theoretical walkaway price that the customer has. And the reason that we want that is we want companies that we feel deliver huge amounts of value to their to their customers. Uh, the reason that we want that is that it means that the customers come back time and time again And to your point about pricing power, that also enables either steady like-for-like pricing power, so prices that go up every year, or it enables them, such as we saw with Microsoft over this year, to increase prices in a step function. Both of those things are an incredibly important uh, tailwinds for compounding, but also from a defense perspective, they're incredibly important when you have an inflationary environment such as today. So pretty much all of our companies have been able to pass price, um, pass certainly the inflation they're seeing their cost, in their cost base through with price. But actually what's interesting is that we're seeing a number of other companies in other sectors that we wouldn't think traditionally have pricing power being able to do that as well. Because as we've just been talking about, inflation is everywhere. It's on the front page of all the major newspapers. Therefore, the ability to pass price is not necessarily something that's unique. But the ability to do it through a cycle is a lot, a lot harder, and those are the companies that we're really looking to invest in. What I think is something that is overlooked by many other investors is not only the impact that inflation has on cost bases when we're talking about an operating cost base, such as labor and cost of goods sold, but also what were we going to see when it comes to capital cost inflation. So, really, where the cost of replacing a company's plant keeps going up. The amount of inventory um, a company has to hold keeps going up and up and up. That obviously has a dramatic impact on the return on equity or the return of invested capital the company uh, can generate. You are starting to see that in companies' inventory. I don't think we've seen it to the extent whereby it's really depressing returns at this moment in time, but I would certainly be laser-focused on companies that feel that they have to spend more and more on capex to deliver the same unit volume of products to their customers. Because what that means typically is that the return on invested capital those companies is coming down and that'll mean that these companies end up becoming less valuable. So operating cost inflation is something that we are seeing across the piece, um, but we're also laser focused on capital cost inflation, which I think is the missing part of the conversation when we're talking about pricing power and the ability to pass price.
0: So, Bertie, what are you hearing from companies? What are some of the most kind of interesting observations that might give insight into, you know, the, the strength of the consumer or um, you know business trends that might be helpful?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. We, we've had the majority of our companies report their second quarter results, and we typically, as I touched on earlier, look for companies whereby they deliver a tremendous amount of value to their customers, and they're really trying to solve a problem. Uh, for those customers uh, and consumers of, the, of, their, of their goods and services, I think when you look at the picture, there is a, still a lot of opacity coming from the aftermath of the pandemic. I hope it isn't aftermath, but um, it certainly looks like it is at this moment in time, which creates, you know, a bit of a foggy picture. When we look at, as Erica was touching on, you know, the consumer, we are also seeing a shift away from. Big ticket items and durable goods to more experiences. So, we have uh, suffered some sort of underperformance over the last couple of years or some headwinds from a number of our companies who are exposed to travel. Uh, Visa would be a good example of that with its cross border travel. We also invest in Safran or Safran, which is the uh, leading uh, manufacturer of narrow body aircraft for air travel. And they make all their money really from when the aircraft engines get serviced. Both of these businesses were severely impacted in the pandemic. And what we're seeing is what can only be described as a let out of jail syndrome of sorts, uh, whereby the consumer wants to travel. They want to see the world. They want to experience things. And actually travel has rebounded much faster than we expected it to. Um, you know, indeed, cross-border volumes for someone like Visa are above where they were in 2019, uh, last quarter and for someone like saffron you know narrow body air traffic is recovering at a much faster rate than we thought it was going to. so you know there's a, a interesting sort of tailwind coming out of the pandemic you know who knows how long that's going to last but as you touched on earlier Sid you know unemployment still remains very very low and against that backdrop we are still seeing a lot of value, within the companies that we invest in. We've been busy adding a handful of new companies to the strategies earlier this year, but we've actually taken pause with some of the rally that we've seen, not only because we're seeing less attractive companies on our ready to buy list, but also because from an opportunity cost perspective, we are seeing tremendous value within our strategies. And when you look at a strategy like Global Focus, which is our concentrated 10 to 15 company strategy, if you look out five years on our conservative numbers, the strategy trades on less than 10 times cash flow, about 8.4 times cash flow, which is one of the lowest multiples on a five-year basis that we've ever had since we started the strategy five years ago. So we do think that time is one of the very few advantages, if the only advantage you have in, investment, uh, in investing, and you need to buy good companies that serve their customers in a special way and really look out as far into the future as you possibly can and be comfortable that those companies will deliver their cash flows. And that's really how you'll end up making money slowly. So that's very much our approach. And we're seeing a lot of value within the strategies within the companies that we invest in at this moment in time.
0: It's an interesting dynamic. I mean, high quality companies compounding their intrinsic value because they're growing um, cash flows, revenues um, at a nice clip when the market is down 20% and they're growing that intrinsic value Um uh, perhaps by a similar amount, I mean, you really are getting a, 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 much, uh, a much bigger discount than perhaps it, it appears for those high-quality companies that are compounding that value. Um, it's interesting.
1: And especially if they can deploy those cash flows in value-added ways. Um, you know, very few company managements that we meet, I'd say less than 15% of management teams that we meet actually think like investors. If you have a management team that can add value through buying other companies that are depressed at this moment in time, or that can buy back their equity that is dramatically undervalued, or can invest back into their business. That you know, that's another a great tailwind for growing that intrinsic value. And those are the management teams that we, we really seek: managers that think like investors. So this has been a, a fascinating discussion, and thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Um, I spend my life looking very much on a on a micro basis of individual companies. Um, Erica and Sid, I love to ask you both about where are you seeing opportunities either on a geographic or asset allocation basis?
0: I mean, you touched on this earlier, Bertie, but, you know, in May and June, I think we were getting some really interesting opportunities on a kind of company-by-company basis uh, to buy great companies on sale. Prices have now moved uh, pretty quickly higher. Um, I think, you know, still what we hear um, from our uh, internal and external managers is, is there are very good you know, five-year returns available today in quality companies with the kind of pricing power, competitive positioning that we want in a you know high inflation and more uncertain uh, environment. So, you know, that's the core of most portfolios, and we still feel really good about it. So, you know, th- that that opportunity still feels good. That's one of the reasons we haven't you know become more bearish or more defensive, despite all of these concerns. Uh, we almost got to a place where. Uh, corporate credit, including high yield, uh, was interesting. Um, I think we may get there in the coming quarters. So, you know, we've kind of been preparing some strategies uh, that could take advantage. That's historically been one of the, the best asset allocation, you know, opportunistic trades that we've made over multiple cycles is, you know, when, when uh, the spread of, of credit uh, to treasuries gets wide enough, uh, if you have a, a reasonably long view um, you could make some some great alpha. We're not quite there yet, but 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 uh, but hopefully soon. Uh, people have heard me drone on about this a lot in in the past. I, I think biotech and life sciences is still a really interesting spot. I know these are companies, Bertie, You you I'm sure never look at. Um, uh, many of them uh, uh, have very little in the way of current revenues. Um, some have no uh, revenues currently, but they have. You know, potentially really interesting pipelines of, of drugs. Most uh, investors in avoid this space entirely uh, because of the challenges of evaluating the science. Um, we've been getting more and more interested in this space because we found some of these specialists um, and the market has been absolutely destroyed uh, over the last 18 months and, and there are record numbers of companies trading below the cash they have on the balance sheet. Some of which they raised in you know, recent IPOs, and we finally started seeing this catalyst of, of M and A activity with big pharma companies using their you know five hundred billion dollars with a B uh, of buying power to uh, to buy uh, their future growth uh, in this space. So um, I guess that probably the last thing I've been thinking about is you know I think we could be entering a much more interesting period for private equity, uh, particularly buyout, perhaps uh, early stage. Uh, uh, venture, um, certainly a much more interesting period than we saw the last couple of years when I think valuations were, were running quite hot. We try to be pretty programmatic about this. We don't try to time this market. But, uh, you know, some people's inclinations in a period like this is, is to really pull back. Um, I think we want to continue to be programmatic. Uh, and companies may struggle a bit more in this uh, period. I think that bodes well for the kind of you know, typical buyout uh, playbook?
2: Yeah, we continue to watch three primary areas, so diversification, deglobalization, and decarbonization. So, Sid touched on diversification, really preparing ourselves for an environment uh, that will have a wide range of outcomes. Deglobalization, you know, Bertie touched on that a lot, um, specifically as it relates to energy security. And then decarbonization. For a while now, we've been focused on ways to invest in the energy transition. And in our view, energy infrastructure presents an interesting long term opportunity, particularly given the shifts in the geopolitical environment and renewed impetus um, on that energy security. Uh, so, energy infrastructure across traditional fossil fuels as well as renewable energy sources. Uh, will be instrumental to Europe's goals of energy independence from Russia. We also like infrastructure from an asset allocation standpoint for that diversification element, but also as a way to generate income and inflation protection, um, and and frankly a, a hedge to higher commodity prices. So we've we've recently um, you know um, utilized an investment strategy that integrates ESG, environmental, social, and governance. Factors throughout their entire investment process and in their portfolio construction. And their focus is on decreasing fossil fuel powered assets and directing capital expenditures towards renewables. Looks like we're coming up on time. So that is all for this roundtable. Stay tuned for our next discussion. Thanks for joining us, Bertie. And thanks to all for listening.
1: Thanks, Bertie. Thanks for having me on.